I start, I want to apologize because last week when I taught 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I left out a key portion. Paul was getting on to the group that was in the church and suing their brothers because they had a dispute with them. But I kind of misinterpreted one of the verses, and I realized this when I was reading and studying a little deeper, that he doesn't just rebuke those who are suing their brothers for trespassing against them or sinning against them, but he also rebukes the group that had trespassed against the one suing them, saying, hey, how dare you stumble your brother and cause them to have an issue with you? You know, Don't you know that, that Jesus died for them? Why would you sin against them? And so Paul wasn't just getting on to the one who was reacting to the sin, but he was also getting on to the one that had caused the problem in the first place. And I, I recognized that I had misinterpreted that while I was reading in commentary, but also while I was reading in Matthew 5, where Jesus spoke very specifically about dealing with those who have sinned against us. He says there in Matthew chapter 5, uh, verse 23, he says, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, if you show up to church, you're ready to worship, and there, remember that your brother has something against you, in other words, that you've sinned against him, he says, leave your gift there before the altar. Don't start worshiping yet. He says, leave your gift before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. And he says this in verse 25, agree with your adversary, the one you have a problem with quickly, while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, the judge hand you over to the officer and you be thrown into prison. He says, assuredly, I say to you, you will be by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. And so he's talking about, when he's, he doesn't say don't ever sin against one another, although that is the, the hope, the ideal, that you wouldn't stumble your brother, you wouldn't sin against them. But he says, here's how to deal with it when it does happen, because it's going to. You guys are going to mess up, you're going to hurt each other's feelings, you're going to have an argument, people are going to say things they don't mean, or things that they do mean, but they need to repent of. And when that happens, deal with it. And he sells them. He says, hey, if you're going to take something up to your brother, excuse me, if you're going to take something, you're going to go worship the Lord. Make sure you deal with those that you've sinned against during the week first because you need to come to the Lord with a clean hands and a pure heart. It's not so much just you know, us cleansing ourselves. That's not it at all. Jesus does the cleansing, but sometimes by the Spirit, he convicts us. Hey, you've, got to, you've sinned against this person or you've wronged somebody. Why don't you deal with that first? So that now you can worship the Lord from a true and pure heart. And number two, sometimes when we apologize, it's more humbling than when we do everything right. And so we come to the Lord with a humble heart. Not expecting that, hey, look how I've got it all together. But going, man, I'm broken. I really need the Lord. And so um, I just wanted to touch on that. I was thinking about it this morning. And I wanted to let you know that sometimes I need a little bit of correcting in the spirit is uh, more than able to correct me even when I miss something in a passage. And I'm sure that's not the first or the last time that'll happen. So here we are in 1 Corinthians 6, and we continue this week in verse 12. And Paul has moved on from this legal issue of two Christian brothers or sisters arguing and then going, you know what, let's settle this in a secular court. He's moved on to another topic. And this topic was an issue that they had in the church. We already know that because in 1 Corinthians 5, he has to deal with the specific issue of sexual immorality in the church. Uh, a man had had his father's wife physically, and so Paul rebukes this. He says, hey, treat him as if he's an unbeliever because his character, his 
habits, his lifestyle, are proving that he really doesn't serve the lordship of Jesus. And so his hope was that they would be brought back into the church and repent after they'd been put out of the church, shunned in a way, but not for the sake of just saying, hey, you know, you, you can never make it, but putting them out so they realize that their, their pattern of lifestyle is actually separating them from God. Our sins separate us from God. It's repentance and faith in Him that brings us back close. It's trusting in the blood of Jesus, but it's also realizing that our actions, that the way that we live our life, affect our relationship with the Lord. And so this morning, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, he speaks to this once again. He says in verse 12, he says, All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Foods for the stomach and stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise up raise up and will also raise us up by his power. And so he says here, he says, all things are lawful. Well, what is he saying there? They're, they're quoting him, and he's referring to how they are quoting him. Paul has taught this. All things are lawful for me. We no longer come to the Lord based on our own righteousness by fulfilling requirements of the law. We don't come to him and say, hey, we're not eating pork, and we're fulfilling all these ceremonies. He says, following the law will not save a person. And he's taught this throughout his epistles. Jesus himself taught this. He says, man doesn't come to God with his own righteousness. Man comes to God with his own emptiness. And so Paul says here, he says, you're quoting me and you're saying that I've taught this and I have. All things are lawful for me. Paul says, but all things are not helpful. All things are not edifying. That word there means not all things that I do, even though they might be lawful for me, will strengthen me. And the idea is that there are things that we no longer, because of the blood of Jesus, we, could, we don't have to worry about what kind of foods we eat. We don't have to, you know, well, does this animal have a split hoof or does it chew the cud like the Old Testament? That's what it taught. There were certain requirements of certain animals that you couldn't eat. And if you'll remember with me in the book of Acts, the Lord spoke to Peter in a vision and said, do not call unclean what I have called clean. He wasn't talking about food, but he's talking about the Gentiles who didn't have God's law and yet God had opened a way for them to have a relationship with him through his son Jesus. That God was going to cleanse the Gentiles and provide a way of salvation so that they could come back and have a relationship with God himself. And so Paul says here, he says, all things are lawful for me. You know, I no longer come to God trying to prove my righteousness or weigh my good against my bad. But he says, but not all things are helpful. And then he says another thing. He says, foods for the stomach, verse 13, and stomach for foods. And, and what was happening is there was sexual immorality and they were being corrected for it. Hey, you can't do this. And they were saying, well, why not? My stomach was made to eat food. And God gave me food. And so when I'm hungry, I have an urge. My stomach says, give me something to eat. I go to the fridge. I open the fridge. I grab some food. Now, they didn't have a fridge, but you, you get my point. When I'm hungry, I eat. Therefore, 
their point they're making is when I feel like I, I want to, I have a, a craving physically for another person, God gave me that urge, and so there's that person, and so there I go, right? Why not? What's the big deal? Well, Paul's going to spend this passage explaining to them why that's not okay. And he says in verse 14, I'm sorry, he says there in verse 13, foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods. That's what they were made for. But he then continues and he says, but God will destroy both it and them. He's saying that food and the stomach are temporary entities. It's a temporary setup. In heaven, we don't have to worry about being hungry and needing food. Now there will be food there, but we're not going to eat it to stay alive. We're going to eat it just for the pure enjoyment of it. God's given those things to us. There's going to be a wedding supper of the Lamb. And at that point, we're all going to sit down as believers with the Lord and we're going to celebrate in a big banquet. And there's going to be wine, there's going to be bread, and we're all going to be celebrating what God has done. So what he's saying here is that, yes, the stomach is made to process food and food is made to satisfy our hunger and actually it's made to sustain us through this life. But he's saying here, that though that temporary setup is there, our bodies and what we use them to do affect us. And they affect us more than just on the physical level like food does. They affect us on the spiritual level. So he says there in the end of verse 13, now the body is not for sexual immorality, but the body is actually made for the Lord. And the Lord is made for the body. Now in this verse we have a great mystery because among all the creation of God's kingdom there is one creature that God has made not only to have relationship with him but also to be able to obtain and and contain the Holy Spirit of the Lord. You say, well, what does that mean? I've heard people say that. You know, the Spirit dwells in the believer. But we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's what he's going to teach at the end of this chapter. And so our bodies, though they are temporary, there's this truth, we're going to read it in the next verse, that God is actually going to, while he destroys the stomach, he's going to destroy food, we won't any longer need it to stay alive, he's going to take this body that he's given us to dwell in, and he's going to raise it from the dead. He says, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. Verse 14, And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. So in the same way that Jesus' body, His physical body, was raised from the dead, He was the first fruits, and we will also be raised in the same power. Those of us who have a relationship with the Lord. And so, does it matter what we do with this physical body? And Paul says, yes. It's not just a physical body. This is something that God is going to use. He's got future plans for it. So uh, it makes me think of the promise that God made to his people in Ezekiel chapter 36. And if you want to turn there, you can. But if not, I'm just going to read the passage. This is a promise that God had made to the nation of Israel through Ezekiel. And it was a foretelling of what God was going to do. Because 
Remember, in the Old Testament, they followed the law. There was an external and outward keeping of the commands in order to show the people that they couldn't fulfill them and that they needed a Savior. But until that point where Jesus would come and be the Savior, they had to look forward to the promise of what God was going to do. So in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse um, 26, it says this. Well, verse 25. He says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. They were worshiping false gods. Verse 26. He says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh, the hard heart that you have, I will replace it, I will give you a heart of flesh, meaning a heart that is soft, a heart that is tender, a heart that is able to be broken. He says, I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. And then he says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and then you will keep my judgments and you will do them. You're no longer going to fulfill the law because you have to. I'm going to give you my spirit, the Lord promises, and then you'll do it as a natural result of having me in you. You'll have an inward conviction and you will no longer have to be told over and over to do it. God's going to convict you himself. He's not only going to change your wants, he's going to give you the desire to want to bless him and please him with your life. And so what Ezekiel was writing about there is what we're seeing fulfilled in the New Testament. Jesus gave them things to do, but what you notice about the disciples is that they did everything Jesus told them to do. They struggled with it. They didn't understand it all. But on the day of Pentecost, these disciples who were wavering in their faith, who doubted, who rejected Jesus, on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was sent as Jesus promised it would be, they were given great boldness. And all of a sudden, all the things that Jesus had told them to do, they did naturally. Not naturally as in a fleshly thing, but naturally as a fruit of them being intertwined with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit filled them, and because they were filled with the Holy Spirit, they overflowed with the Word of God. They delighted to do the will of the Father just as Jesus had done before them and had shown that by His example. And so what he's telling them there is that God's going to give you a new heart. And the heart is the seedbed where all the desires come from. Psalm 37 says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. That doesn't mean he'll give you what you want. It means he'll give you his desires and as a result, you'll want to fulfill them. You will delight in doing the will of the Lord. And so Paul continues to write here and he's speaking about the fact that we can do anything we want. God's freed us from sin and the bondage of sin. He's freed us from the power of sin. But he's also given us a new heart. And so there are going to be times where you as a believer will have the option to do something or not. And what Paul says here is that although all things are lawful, doesn't make sin lawful, by the way, but although all things are lawful, not all things will help you in your Christian walk. And so he says there, this is the case. And he actually writes, well, excuse me, there are many who believe that the book of Hebrews was written by Paul. I'm one of them. 
But if you disagree, it's totally fine. There's really no biblical evidence to show who wrote it. But in the book of Hebrews, the writer there, to be biblically correct, he writes on this same thing. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. And he uses the analogy of racing. Not driving a car, although that could be another analogy, but running. Paul was obsessed with the Olympic Games. And he uses these analogies about these sports so much. I'm not a sports guy, but I really like sports because of the way that Paul talks about them. And he, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, he makes this point. He says, therefore, we also, after talking in chapter 11 about these, these races and these people that have gone before us and have walked by faith, trusting the Lord. He says, since we're so, surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, he says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So though we have the right to partake in certain things, because we've been freed from sin and the bondage of it, there are some things that sometimes we have to say, you know what, that's not for me because it's going to hinder me from doing what God's called me to do. Stephen Persley in the paper this week, big famous runner, you know, and you don't see Stephen picking up a backpack right before he runs his cross-country race and taking off because he's got some stuff in his backpack that he might need because he's laying aside the weight that might slow him down. Notice he says there, lay aside the weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Sin obviously needs to be laid aside to keep us from being hindered. But there are also things that need to be laid aside that we might be free to partake in. Paul says, hey, sometimes we need to travel light because the traveling will be easier. We'll be able to bless the Lord. The disciples, when they were sent out the first time, Jesus sent them out two by two. He says, I'm giving you authority to perform miracles. He says, but when you go, this time, don't take any money with you. And when you go this time, don't take an extra set of clothes. Don't, don't take food with you. What he was trying to show them is, when I send you this time, I'm going to be your provider. And though it might, in your mind, help you to take stuff along, I want to help you in your faith. I want to show you that when you go out to do what I've called you to do, I'm going to provide for you what you need to do it. And so he sent them out. Now, when he sends them out later, he says, go ahead and take extra clothes with you. Take some money, you know, be prepared. But in the first time, he tells them, don't take anything with you. Now, they could have ignored his command, but they would have missed out on the blessing of going out in his power, in his strength, in his provision, rather than trying to do it on their own. So, Paul here is writing that. He's saying, you know, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are going to help me. Let me ask you, as you're trying to figure out what God wants you to do, when you figure out what he wants you to do, are you willing to lay aside some things that might hinder you from doing specifically what he's called you to do? There are things that I could list that I think would hinder me from doing what I'm called to do, but I'm not necessarily called to do what you're called to do. What is it that you are holding on to in your life that will hinder you 
from doing what God wants you to do? What is it that you're holding on to that's good, but it's not God's best? Are you willing to lay it aside for the joy that's set before you, pleasing the Lord, in order to run the race, not just to finish, but to win? And that crown of glory that's waiting for you, don't you realize that if you gain, obtain that, it's going to be something that you get to give back to the Lord and go, thank you, Lord, you did it. I, I don't know about you guys, but I want crowns. Not so I can be big in heaven, but so I can make my God big. So I can give him to the glory of his name. And so he continues in this chapter. He says this, this thing that you're holding on to. In this case, it is sin. I do want to make that point. Sexual immorality is sin. Anything outside of the covenant of marriage, the commitment of two people, a man and a wife, anything outside of that is sin. And the Corinthians are living in a culture where it's like just down the street. Imagine, if you will, if we just looked across this, the railroad tracks over there, and there's this big temple, and we're sitting in our house worshiping our, our God, but across the railroad tracks there's this big temple where everybody in town goes, and everybody knows what goes on there. There's hundreds, thousands of priestesses where you can go and pay money and you can meet your sexual urge. Now they've lived in this culture. They're uh, callous to it. It's just what people do on a Friday night. What's the big deal? It's normal to them. They're used to it. And so there are Christians in the Corinthian church that are going, what's the big deal if I go over there and partake? I'm not worshiping the God. I'm just getting me something to eat. Or in this case, I'm just fulfilling my urge, you know? And what Paul says is uh, there, it, there's a deeper thing that you're missing about what our bodies are made for. And that's what he's gonna do. He's gonna tell them, number one, it's wrong, but he also says, why? I think sometimes as the church, and I'm not talking about us, although this can pertain to us if we're not careful, I think sometimes the church worldwide, we come up with, the list of don'ts, and then we go out and tell people why they can't do them. Excuse me. We go out and tell people that they can't do them, but we never really tell them why. And so they're going, man, I don't want to be a Christian. All it is is a list of things I can't do. I'm not a Christian now, and I can do those things. And frankly, I like those things. I've got no reason not to. And so Paul informs them, but he's not talking to non-believers. He's talking to people in the church that though they are babes in Christ, they need to know a little bit more about what God has called them to. And so Paul doesn't start off the, with the assumption of, you ought to know better. No, he corrects them strongly, but he also says, are you not aware of? Do you not know? And so in verse 15, he continues, he says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Now that word for members is like, each one of us have two members that hang from our shoulders, their arms. Some of them work better than others. Some of them are more meticulous at doing things. Some of them have aches and pains. But we have members that help us to do what our bodies are meant to do. So he says this, he says, Do you not know that your bodies, he's talking about physical bodies, are members of Christ? That some of you are a big toe, of Jesus, we are the body of Christ. Some of you are the arm. Some of you are uh, 
the elbow, you know, some of you are the ear. You know, we look at members of our body and we go, well, some of these I could do without, some of them not so much. But what God says is we are the body of Christ. He says, shall I then take the members of Christ, the arms, the legs, the toes, the organs that God meant for procreation, should I take those things and make them members of a harlot? Should I go into a, 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 a prostitute and use the members of Christ that God's given me? He says, certainly not. You know, he doesn't give him a whole lot of time to think about that. He says, no, absolutely not. What are you thinking? He says, or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. So he opens up this mystery that was written in the book of Genesis. And he, it was at the first marriage, Adam and Eve. And he says, and the two shall become one flesh. Now remember how Eve was created. And remember how Adam was created. Adam was formed from the dust of the earth. And then out of the side of Adam, many say he took a rib, but the Lord did the first surgery. He opened up the side of Adam, he put him to sleep, and he took out Eve out of the side. And so he formed Eve out of Adam. So now these, this one flesh was made into two. All of a sudden, there's two people, two thoughts, two ways of thinking, and we know that we're totally different. And that's okay. God's made us that way. We're not supposed to be the same. And then what he does is he institutes marriage. And he takes two people that are two individuals, and he says, you're going to become one flesh. Now, obviously, they, they, they go through the marriage ceremony, but then they consummate. And when they consummate, the Lord doesn't see it as they spend a little time together, that that very act of consummating marriage actually knits the two spiritually together. It's much deeper than something physical. Now, in our culture, people have disdained that. They've said, you know, what's the big deal? It's like eating a sandwich. I eat a sandwich and sometimes I go do this. But Paul's saying, whoa, 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 careful. We're toying with something that's much more important than eating a sandwich. Much. And that's to put it lightly. And so he informs them. He says, do you not know that he who is joined physically to a harlot is one body with him? Oh, excuse me, with her. He says, in, the pre, in that previous verse, he says, shall I take Christ with me where I go and perform these wicked things? Certainly not. Because this physical act is much more than just a physical act. He says, verse 17, But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. He says, do you not know? He says, your bodies are more than merely flesh. Here's something that you should know. As Christians, God has made your physical bodies now members with Christ. We've been over that. And if you're a physical member of Christ, then by committing sexual immorality, by meeting your physical need or your urge, you're making Jesus Christ one with a harlot. Everything you do, you take Jesus with you as a Christian because you're a member of his body. I still remember the conversation that Kelly and I had. We were just dating at the time and she was just starting to walk with the Lord. And <clears throat> I'm sharing this with you. I, she's shared it with many other people. But she said, it, it, 
one day it really dawned on her, and she was at a friend's house, and they were watching this filthy movie. And she was all of a sudden convicted, not for the other person, but for herself. She was like, at the moment that the movie was on, and she was watching it, and she had watched it before she became a Christian, and she wasn't convicted about it. And now, with the Holy Spirit in her, she was like, I was just very aware that what I was watching, the Lord was there watching it with me. And she said, that, that just made me feel icky. Like I had just drugged the Lord himself through a big ditch full of mud. And so what we need to realize is that many times by what we are okay with and by what we subject ourselves to, that we are in fact doing that. In this case, he's talking about physical sexual immorality. But many times we do it with things that we think of aren't that important. We need to be careful about that. We need to be sensitive. We need to be paying attention to that part of flesh that God's given us that is meant to convict us when we're doing something that's really not okay. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. What does it say about the holiness of the Lord when we drag him through the mud? Well, he continues to give his reasoning for this very teaching, and he quotes, like I said, from Genesis. And he says that this physical union that the Lord gives to a married couple in Genesis is much more than just physical needs met. But deep down, they're partaking in a mystery that God has given for a husband and a wife that joins them together personally, permanently. And this joining together, apparently, according to these two verses, is to point us to the spiritual permanent joining together of the believer and Jesus. And so we see this taught by Paul also in Ephesians chapter 5. So if you turn there with me, I've heard this passage taught so many times, and yet I learned so much still from it. Many times, I don't know if you guys have ever been to a marriage retreat or heard Ephesians 5 taught. It's, it's always taught about marriage relationships, and it's very important. But what Paul is teaching about in Ephesians 5 is not the marriage relationship so much as that it's a type of the relationship that we as individuals and we as the church have with the Lord. He says there in verse 22 of chapter 5 of Ephesians, he says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. He says, therefore, just as the church is subject or submitted to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Now, lest us husbands get all prideful, he then spends way more time talking about what the husbands are to do. Verse 25, he says, husbands, love your wives. Not like we think they should be loved, but he says, just as Christ also loved the church. I can love my wife, but that's a whole new level, right? How did Christ love the church? He laid down his rights. He laid down his life physically to cleanse his bride. That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. That he might present her to himself a glorious church. Not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. But that she would be holy and without blemish. That he would wash her. The idea is purity. The idea is that white wedding gown that we traditionally have in weddings. That The idea is that 
This bride is coming and saying, I'm yours, but I come to you prepared. I'm holy. He says, so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife is loving himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. So just as the husband is to love the wife, it's really supposed to show how much Jesus loves the church. So we are to learn from his example. He says, for we, and he, the same teaching we just read in 1 Corinthians 6, he's saying here in Ephesians 5, for we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, he says, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined, cleaved, attached permanently to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, he says, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So he says, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife. Well, where do we else do we see that same phrase? John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He so loved that he gave. And so, when you give yourself to your bride, when a man gives himself to his bride, when a wife gives herself to her husband, she's saying, "I'm yours. I'm only yours." So Paul's saying, when you're Christ, you're not just whoever's, you're his. He's paid the dowry, the bride price. Old school, they would come and they would say, hey, I want to marry your daughter. Here's the dowry. And it would be, whether physical or some sort of gift, or it would be some sort of wealth or money, they were saying, hey, I'm in. I'm sold. I, I want her to be my bride. Here's some money. And it wasn't so much paying for her to do something who was paying to be able to give himself to her and her to him as only for each other and so we as the church we as individual christians he's going to teach this here we are in first corinthians 6 he says there in verse 18 he says flee sexual immorality every sin that a man does does it's outside the body but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Now remember, he said, if you love your wife, you're really, you're, the man that loves his wife is loving himself. He's loving his own flesh. And he says there, he says, whoever commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know? There's that phrase again. He's, he's all going at this uh, based on the assumption of, if you guys are really doing this, and you think it's okay, you must not know what I know. He says, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? He says, you're not your own. Now, some of the greatest times of judgment is when the leaders of Israel and kings would come in, and they would bring idols and set them up in the physical temple in Jerusalem. And they would worship these false gods. And God would bring harsh judgment upon them because by coming in and worshiping idols inside the temple, they were committing idolatry that the Lord was not okay with. 
And he would judge them very harshly. He says, but we don't go and worship in the physical temple anymore. We are the temple. And when you bring an idol into this physical temple, you're defiling it. And the Lord doesn't take that lightly. Where the Holy Spirit is, there's not to be the worship of any other thing. And so he points that out. He says, you're not your own anymore. Verse 20, for you were bought at a price. He says, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. He's saying, you cannot do that if you're committing sexual immorality. It goes way beyond the physical. So I've got a few notes about this last section, verse 18 through 20. He says, flee sexual immorality of any kind, not just the obvious. Because, verse 18, he says, because he who commits sexual immorality sins against himself or herself. Not only does it hurt the Lord, but it hurts us physically and spiritually. And because, verse 19, the Holy Spirit is in you, as God promised he would give to the believer. So you grieve, not only do you hurt yourself, but you grieve the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, also because you are not your own anymore. I heard the, the guy that I listened to teach this this week. He said they actually took a piece of wood and they carved this verse into it. It says, you are not your own, you were bought at a price. If we would remember that in our daily lives, how often do you think we would not do some of the things that we do? I've got my rights. No, you don't. You're not your own. He's got his rights to you. Now, what would that narrow down, whether you're going to do something or not? It was convicting to me because there are some things that I know the Lord's not pleased with and he says, get rid of it. You're not your own. You were bought with Jesus' blood, the price that it cost for your redemption. And then he says, because you were created to bring pleasure to the Lord, and you do this when you glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are both God's. Did you know that we are made, we were created for God to bring pleasure to Him? It brings Him pleasure when we glorify Him spiritually and in our bodies. He gets joy. He is somehow in the Godhead, Him being God and us being mere man, First of all, the psalmist wrote, why would he even consider us? And second of all, he created us, not just for relationship with him, but because we have the ability as finite creatures to bring him pleasure. And that's what our purpose is. Our purpose is to bring pleasure to the Lord. You are not your own anymore, but you were bought at a price. You were sold over to sin and bondage, but the Lord has set you free. Therefore, flee anything that would threaten to take back the reins of your life that really belong to Jesus Christ, your Redeemer. Do you live like that? Do you flee immorality? There are times where the Lord says, stand fast, hold firm to the faith. And then there are also times in Scripture where it doesn't say fight. It says flee. You know, when is your time to flee? What's the thing that ensnares you? You know, for years, for me, to be brutally honest, you know what it was? It was what was on the internet, what I was clicking, what I was looking at. And the Lord over and over was, he was just so gracious and yet so convicting. Don't you know I love you? 
that that thing's not for you. It's never going to bring you satisfaction. I want to I free you from that. <laughs> this thing is hindering you in your relationship with me. Lay it aside. And man, when I did, there was joy. I could be pleasing to the Lord. What is it for you? What is the thing that you're holding on to that threatens to take back or even right now at this very moment is taking control over you that really belongs to the Lord? In Ephesians chapter 5, I know we were just there, but in Ephesians chapter 5, there are many in the Christian camp that get all upset about this verse. But in Ephesians chapter 5, here's what it says. Verse 17, Therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Everybody gets all upset about that because there's different viewpoints on whether drinking's okay or not. And I'm not going to talk about that right now because it's not my point. But what that passage is about is not so much what we're not to do, but it's what we are to do. What Paul's saying here is anything that controls you other than the Lord should not be permissible for you. So the idea is that the believer, we are to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Whether it's drinking or whether it's what we watch or whether it's where we go, whether it's what we practice physically, we are not to be brought under the control of anything as believers but the Lord. That's where we'll find true satisfaction, fulfillment, and joy. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are patient with us. We thank you for this strong word from Paul that we live in a culture that though we don't have a temple across the tracks that has uh, sexual immorality going on constantly, we do have it going on in chat rooms. We do have it going on on the YouTube. We do have sexual immorality uh, piped into our very homes on the TV. Lord, help us to flee immorality. Jesus said that it wasn't so much about the physical act. He said it was about the heart. It wasn't what goes into the body. Excuse me. Yeah, it wasn't what goes into the body that defiles a man, but it's what comes out. And so, Lord, remove from us any desire that's not a desire that brings glory to you. Thank you for this passage. Lord, help us not to be moved by the opinions, by the actions, by the habits of our culture. Help us to be those who put away those things that hinder us from fully entering into our joy that is you. But Lord, also, I thank you for being patient enough with us to teach us these things. Thank you for the heart of Paul. Do you not know? Lord, many of us, we're still learning, and so we don't know. So Lord, thank you for being faithful to continue to teach us. Lord, as we open up this time, as we reflect upon the truths we've studied this morning, I just want to open up this time that we're going to take communion and ask, Lord, examine our hearts. Help us to remember why we've been created, to bring pleasure to you. And Lord, as we look to the bread and the, the juice, Lord, we, we look at how you've taught us to, to partake of this supper until you return. So Lord, may this be a time of reflection in our relationship with you. And Lord, may you have the victory over the sin, over anything that might be a weight that's ensnaring us and keeping us from fully enjoying our relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen.